you know, our cultural influences to to want to justify or reason away at mistakes people make. This is especially true within politics and media. But the yeah. recent spotlights into church leadership failings, whether from you know, the evangelical or the Catholic traditions, also show our inability to admit, admit when we get things wrong. We, we just rather would kind of explain it away. So what does, in your mind, what does truly admitting our failures and mistakes look like? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Stephen Miller. He's a man of many talents, including a musician, artist, writer, and content creator. Stephen, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. So each of those things, probably different people know you by, uh, but kind of uh, in this day and age, it's fascinating uh, seeing just how much your uh, YouTube channel, the Miller Fam YouTube channel has, has blown up. It's something you started with your yeah. wife, Amanda. Tell us a little bit about uh, why y'all wanted to create this content and put it out there in the world. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I'm probably as surprised as anybody that it took off the way that it did. Um, I was in ministry for, you know, the greater part of two decades almost and uh, doing worship, you know, leading and writing books to train worship leaders and things like that. And of course, sort of all along the way, I'm a dad. I've got seven kids. We adopted 
you know, four, two from Ethiopia, two from China. And, um, uh, you know, people would just say, you guys need your own show, you know, or, or it, it, the, well, the response would vary from person to person on whether they thought we were insane, <laughs> which probably are, or uh, just like, there's this beautiful sort of diverse adoption uh, story that, that that's there that I think people found intriguing. And so um, we knew we didn't want to do like a, a, like a traditional show, but we were already documenting our lives on like Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that, just for our friends and family to follow along with. And we thought, well, you know, why not, why not make some videos, you know? Um, and we kind of thought that it would just be our friends and family that watched them, but it started with like our, our adoption video from China. We adopted two kids um, in 2017 from China and um, it was a really amazing process. And also like there was just, so much brokenness right along with the beauty and so we waited like a year after we adopted to post the video and um you know we just thought cool you know and i guess all the people that watched it uh loved it and watched it all and so the youtube algorithm kind of picked it up and like our first video just went kind of crazy like people started watching it and we were around that time had been uh, our son Lincoln had been diagnosed with a rare brain disease called Moya Moya. And we already knew that he had some pretty significant special needs. He has cerebral palsy, a uh, form of that called left side hemiplegia due to some um, strokes he had had in utero. And um, so when we adopted him, we knew that, but we didn't know the extent of his special needs. And so we just got that diagnosis and we were looking at bilateral brain surgery to correct it. And we're just like, dude, I'm, I'm making a pastor's salary and I'm trying to like, make ends meet finding different means to do that we you know i would do photography like wedding photography engagement photography stuff like that but most of it had to do with like creativity and um and so we thought you know youtube apparently like you can kind of make some money doing youtube so what if we actually started doing this more regularly um and so we did and uh it just like we didn't really know that it would go the way that it did. And we're just so grateful that it did. So I actually stepped away from full-time um, pastoral ministry in 2019, uh, just right before the pandemic hit actually. Um, in, in, in uh, like September 28th, I think was my last Sunday. Um, and we knew that like God's hand was on this. We were doing this. We, our, our channel had grown uh, to a few hundred thousand at that time subscribers. And we were making, you know, decent money actually doing it. And, uh, and, but what we were finding more than that was like, we were getting a chance to sort of share the gospel in ways that I never got to do on the platform. Uh, we'd get uh, direct messages from people in countries that didn't have access to the Bible. Uh, we'd find that we could have these conversations in a, in a way that didn't feel preachy or judgy, or like people were coming to us asking us, like, we see something different in your family um, what, you know, can you tell us about Jesus? Cause I've heard of him, but I don't know much about it. And so we get these opportunities to kind of talk about that. So it's a very non-traditional type of ministry we've been able to do, but we've been able to do it for a few years now. And I'm so grateful because, um, it's very different from standing on a platform and singing songs and exhorting people and, uh, trying to encourage them to love Jesus more, but in a very real way, it's still like the way that I'm a dad or a husband is still very much worship. And so uh, I, you know, it's just offering that expression of worship up to God every day. So uh, there's something really beautiful about it. And I'm really grateful that we get to do it. 
Well, to a certain extent, you could almost make the argument you might be reaching um, people who, who aren't participating in church in a greater capacity than when you were working in a church. You know, the yeah. fact that uh, your life is out there, um, who you are as an individual, your, your choice mm -hmm. to follow Jesus, that it's telling a story to people in ways that they might not see. Yeah. And they might have a certain perception of what Christianity is, you know, if they're darkening right. the door of the church. You know, I wonder for y'all, um, because your, your family is um, racially diverse. And, you know, this is the last couple of years, the tension that has continued to build in our country as people wrestle with these ongoing issues that we have in America uh, around uh, yeah. historic racism and systemic racism. You know, what are you learning as, as a father of, um, you know, not predominantly white children uh, about yeah. um, raising children and how that's impacting your family and how they're affected by all these things that are happening in our world and have been happening in our world. Man, I am, I'm optimistic, honestly. And I know that um, optimism doesn't sell ads, you know, uh, but I, I really love some of one of the choices that we've made is that we're not putting our head in the sand and acting like it doesn't exist, but we love that. Like our approach to, to it is very much like, well, let's just live by example, you know? Um, and, I, and when you do that, your actions really do speak louder than your words. And so um, I think that's something that, you know, uh, people th throughout history have taken that approach and have seen, beautiful things happen whether that it's it's just that you're building something rather than trying to tear something down now that's not to say that you shouldn't speak out against injustice and things like that but i think our family's approach has very much been like we're we're just going to show what it looks like to be a loving family um and and to show what it looks like to uh to appreciate and celebrate the beauty of diversity um and to you know it, it inclusion whatever really our our hope whenever we sort of designed our family or god put together our family the way that he did is that it would really uh be a demonstration of god's love for the nations um i did ministry at a church in st louis for five years and it was an incredibly racially divided city and i didn't really have a any kind of like experience with that in the past you know i've grown up in in cities and towns where it was very much like racially harmonious and um you never really i never really experienced racism in my own heart i never really experienced people who acted that way um and so to go to a town that had so much tension like that it was a pretty big wake-up call for me um and to sit with people and sit across the table from them and have coffee with them and ask them questions and learn and really recognize areas of my own ignorance um i think that shaped me a lot and i think that that uh what what living a life like this on sort of in the public eye as a as a diverse family does for us is it does give us an opportunity to listen to people and to hear their stories and to um, to hear, I, I would say that we never really get hate, which is uh, a beautiful thing for our family. Um, you know, everybody who, who tells us something, if we say something the wrong way or, or whatever, I think most people, because they see us living life, there is a, there's a sense that like they know us. Um, and when you really know somebody, it's a lot harder to like assume 
the worst about them. So whenever someone talks to us and says, hey, you know, you said this this way, um, that's maybe not the best way to say that. And here's why. And they kind of give us an example. It's always done in a very loving, respectful, uh, constructive manner. And I'm so grateful for that. And so not only are we getting to sort of give, a, a, you know, a demonstration of, of try, hopefully in a, in a good way, that's uh, pointing to Jesus and, and, and showing the beauty of the gospel and the beauty that God loves the world um, in our family. We're also getting to learn from people um, who see that and want to help us. And as long as we keep our hearts humble and our ears attentive, um, it's really been a cool, I think in a, in a weird way, like a public expression of what I hope could begin to happen and is happening around coffee shops and dinner tables and wherever you are um, on a regular basis. Because in the end, like if we just tried to get to know each other and be curious and ask questions and be willing to humble ourselves and admit our own ignorance, I think a lot of this uh, really does change uh, and, and probably a lot quicker than we, you know, would accomplish uh, from a lot of the stuff that we see on the news, you know? So you have a new book, uh, the art of, of getting it wrong. Um, yeah. this is a memoir about your journey as a husband, as a father, it's a theological reflection. You wrote, I definitely have the failing big fast and often thing down like a pro though. I'm not quite <laughs> sure if I've hit the beautiful part yet. That is, unless you consider the beautiful things that can come out of getting it wrong. Uh, walk us through mm. what inspired you to write this book. Man, uh, you know, I'm, I turned 40 this year and, uh, there's something that happens kind of at that point in your life. And I guess for me, it really did happen a couple of years ago where I was kind of looking at my life and going like, is this really it? Like, is it, uh, is all that I've worked for and all of my dreams, is this really what life is about? And, and then I look at my, my kids and their generation and their peers, and I see this sort of like, uh, paralyzing anxiety of what's going to happen if I mess up. Like there's a fear of failure to the extent that they won't try sometimes. Uh, and that's like really heartbreaking for a dad to watch. So I, I wrote this book sort of for my kids and their peers. And then for myself and my peers, essentially to say that, yeah, you're going to mess up. Like there's really no other way around it. If you're going to do anything, you're going to mess up. You're going to, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to think the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, assume the wrong thing. Or even if you get it right, you have the wrong motives or you'll hurt people along the way. And we've seen certainly a lot of that uh, in the church um, where you just see these extremely successful churches, but then there's a body count, you know, behind them. Uh, and so to say like, there is this beauty and brokenness in life that kind of go hand in hand and I can fail. And that's not the end. I'm not my failure, you know, uh, my failure doesn't define me, but it can refine me. My failure is not the end. Uh, I can get more out of my failure than I lost from it. My failure could be my biggest blessing. Uh, if I let it be, if I choose to humble myself in the wake of it and grow from that. Um, and I, and I, I would really hope that that would be both an encouragement for guys who are you know, in the middle of the, uh, the struggle or who have come to the end of their struggle or are getting ready, uh, to start it, you know, that it's going to be okay. And I say that to my kids, probably more than any phrase, honestly, I said it to my wife, and I say that to myself, probably more than any phrase that, that I have the privilege of saying, because I know it's true, that it's going to be okay, that no matter what, 
uh, God's got this, and he is actually weaving together a story for my good and for his glory. And, uh, and so if I can, you know, learn that, um, life gets a lot more fun because even when I do mess up, which I'm going to, um, man, I can, I can come out way stronger on the other side, um, by God's grace, you know, to learn from that and metabolize that and grow from it. You wrote our failures don't, um, rob us of our identity and purpose. We've already been given by God. They may actually push us further into that purpose. Um, you've written this book about failures and getting it wrong. What do you think most people's relationship is with their wrongness? Well, I think most people are probably their own worst critics to begin with. And so, you know, there's a great book called the soul of shame uh, that you could read that just kind of talks about our relationship with shame. And I think that's directly proportionate to our relationship with failure. Um, I, I think my hope with this is that we learn to have more grace for each other and more grace for ourselves, because I, I don't know if, if at any other point in history, uh, our failures have been more on display for the world. And I say that because I could have the greatest success of my life, and it's sort of written with my finger in the sand on a beach. And as soon as the next wave comes up, it's gone, right? But if I fail, uh, and this is a, a word for pastors, because you know we more than ever before in history, we're seeing pastors who have failed. Uh, that failure is like hard, you know carved into the concrete with like a jackhammer and you sort of live with that scarlet letter for the rest of your life and i would say um that if we're really truly about the gospel of grace and the gospel that says when you repent god is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness that's not to say that the consequences are not going to be there uh but i think most people have a tendency to try to identify others by their worst failure. And I talk to guys all the time who have, who have fallen in ministry, who have, who have messed up their lives and, and are literally undone, have no idea what to do. And, you know, they're like maybe in the thick of it and they are sitting in a room with a guy. I had, I've had several friends who have actually killed themselves in the wake of, these these failures because they don't know like where to turn they don't know what to do they don't they've lost hope because literally everyone's looking at them and identifying them by their failure not by the savior who paid for that failure not by any of those things and and i think most of them most of us are probably willing to take responsibility for our failures but it's it's very hard to to live in a society that just kind of wants to cancel you forevermore uh, for anything and everything. And, and so, um, you know, that's kind of a little bit of a soapbox moment, but uh, I would hope uh, that the more that we look into ourselves and into our own lives and really evaluate how we failed uh, and begin to try to apply the gospel of grace to that, and see that our identity is so far greater than our mess ups. Um, but there, but our identity is a, a savior who, because he wanted to, because it delighted him, stepped out of heaven, wrapped himself in flesh, dwelt among us, died on a cross in our place for our, uh, for our sin to take away our guilt, our shame, our death, right? Uh, 
and identify ourselves most with that, that I'm created in the image of God. I've been redeemed by his blood. I've been adopted into his family. And I, and my kid comes to me, hey, I've messed up. There's going to be nothing but grace. There may still be consequences, but I'm going to love on them. I'm going to delight in them still. I'm going to own them. They're, they're mine. There's nothing they can do to change that. And so um, if I can live in that identity and begin to see myself in that light, I think and I hope that that would humble me enough to begin to see others in that light as well. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. Did you know that CBB offers every participant an opportunity to create a comprehensive financial plan with a certified financial planner at Empower Retirement, free of charge? Learn more about completing your financial plan at churchbenefits.org backslash financial planning. As an incentive for our ordained participants, CBB will apply $500 to your retirement account when you complete a financial plan. It's a small, grant-funded way we can invest in your future. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefit services, and financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. In the book you write about, you know, a particular quote sticks out. He says, I, st- I stink at it, but these days I'm trying not to be defensive when I mess up. I'd rather admit my failures as quickly as possible and ask for forgiveness the first yeah. chance I get. You know, our cultural influences to, to want to justify or reason away at mistakes people make. This is especially mm-hmm. true within politics and media. But the yeah. recent spotlights into church leadership failings, whether from you know, the evangelical or the Catholic traditions, also show our inability to admit, admit when we get things wrong. We, we just rather would kind of explain it away. So what does, in your mind, what does truly admitting our failures and mistakes look like? Um, I think in some ways, and I would say this coming from a guy who spent a long time in ministry, that the church is the least safe place to admit you're wrong. <laughs> That's maybe a controversial statement, but uh, you know, I grew up and I heard this phrase over and over again, and it never sat right with me, but the church is, only, is the only uh, army that shoots their wounded. And I was always like, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but the more I sit with guys who that's their story, you know, the more I sit with guys who aren't on staff at church, it's like, we're supposed to be able to be authentic and honest about who we are in the church. But so many people, their story is that they're trying to be authentic and honest about their struggles and they don't find not, not necessarily acceptance. I don't know that that's what people are longing for is like you to 
justify my sin so much as you to love me in the midst of the struggle. So I think number one, uh, you have to kind of be willing to recognize. I think God will often let us hit rock bottom because he knows he's the rock at the bottom, right? So if you've built, and and this is this is a hard thing whenever you are a career uh, anything and your and your career is based on your reputation. I, I think, um, for the longest time, there was a, um, there's a song and a very, fa- very famous song that we'd sing in the church. And it's, uh, it's called no longer slaves. And it says, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. And for the longest time I was like, man, that just feels so like froofy and fluffy and feel good. Like, I'm no longer a slave to fear. Like, why fear? Why not? I'm no longer a slave to sin, or I'm no longer a slave to something else that feels a little more, uh, you know, like burdensome, you know? And then it hit me that, like, that's actually straight up scripture. Like, God has not given you a spirit of fear that leads you back to slavery, but He's given a spirit of sons, a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And there is nothing that will enslave you more then when you believe a lie enough that uh, that you're afraid, the number one command in scripture is don't be afraid, right? The number two is sing, which is kind of crazy that that's, those are the two things that God commands us the most to do. Uh, so there's something to that. And I think when we build our foundation of our life on any identity other than that we're redeemed and adopted by Jesus, uh, there's just this lack of like ability to be actually transparent and honest about our struggles and failures. Um, and so I think to an extent, you have to have a group of people who you give access to truly know you and to be, to, and that's, that's easier said than done, but also you have to preach to yourself the truth because if the truth sets us free, a life will put us in slavery. And that's exactly what happens. If you believe that your failures are going to cost you your career are going to cost you your ability to provide for your family, are going to cost you your community, are going to maybe cost you your family itself, then how can you possibly uh, own your mistakes, you know, and actually complain about stuff and find the healing that you desperately need? You're not going to. You're going to stay enslaved, and you're going to keep trying to go back to Egypt and keep trying to go back to Egypt and keep trying to go back to Egypt, and that's the imagery there. So, uh, I would say the number one thing is, and this is what I what I wrote in the book, is like every day you have to tell yourself what's actually true because the culture and I, I believe spiritual warfare is very real. Uh, the enemy are all trying to tell you something different, that your security is in your work, that your security is your is in your career, that your security, that your identity, that all these things are in the things that you have built or you are building. And in reality, God's saying, like, that's sinking sand, man. Like, you cannot look to your own work and your own doing to find your identity and your own security. It has to be in me. It has to be in me. And as soon as, I mean, I think sometimes uh, the, like, the hound of heaven, I call the Holy Spirit the the hound of heaven. That's not original to me. I think it was Spurgeon uh, originally uh, who said that. He's just going to keep coming after you, man. So, like it's it's better, and I say fail fast. Uh, if you mess up, like own it as quick as you can, because the longer you put off, uh, I, there's a chapter in the book. If you keep putting it off, it's just going to suck more, and that's the case with sin. Whenever you let 
your sin continue to go on unchecked, unconfessed, unrepented of, it's just going to suck more whenever the fruit of it finally blossoms and you have to experience the devastating weight of that. So fail quick and own it as quick as you can and grow from it and learn from it as fast as you possibly can. That's, I mean, I would say that's the biggest thing that I would say to any pastor or any leader, any husband, any kid. I mean, we all know when our kids uh, have messed up and they know it, but they won't come clean about it. And it just, it's always worse for them, you know, whenever they're finally found out. So like there may be somebody listening to this podcast and, and you're met and you're dealing with some stuff and you feel utterly trapped and you don't have any clue how to get out of this. You know, let me just tell you, come clean, man, come clean. Like I promise you, Worst case scenario, you lose everything, but you find freedom in the truth, and it truly does set you free. And there is, there is so much more on the other side if you just come clean about your mess ups. So, I mean, I know that sounds kind of ominous, uh, but man, it's a beautiful thing. I can say firsthand, it is a beautiful thing when you come clean about your stuff and you, you know, allow the Lord to do his healing work in your life and in your family and in your marriage and in your ministry. And I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It really, really is. I think that's, that's the hardest part for people, uh, because I think the number of reasons of why people don't have a comfortability with their wrongness and getting it wrong and admitting they're wrong and admitting their failures is any number of reasons. It could be a fear. Um, it, you know, it could be ego, it could be control and power. Uh, there's, there's a lot going on there. Um, in the book, you, you, you talk about cancel culture. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, that's a raging debate right now around, you know, quote, why people get canceled and, and why some do and some don't, you know, so in your mind, what is, what is cancer, you know, cancel culture? Um, and where does, where does accountability cancer culture was a little more? <laughs> yeah. Cancer, cancer culture might be a best yeah. way to describe it, but yeah, it's about, you know, word. so what is it to you and, and where does accountability fit into the conversation on where cancer cult, I keep saying cancer culture, good gracious, <laughs> but I guess it is right. Cancel culture might actually, slip. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, to a certain extent, where, where does accountability fit into the conversation where yeah. this cancel culture actually maybe gets it right? Mm. Well, okay, I, I think there's a, that's a very nuanced answer. But the number one thing I would say is that the people who have the right to hold me accountable are the people who actually know the truth. Uh, in my mind, like that's the people that I, uh, you, you can truly only be held accountable in a way that's actually leads to change. If you are submitting to that accountability and you're humbling yourself to allow people to see all the details so that you can actually grow from that. I, I feel that way because dude, I mean, you hear stuff and I mean, 
I, I don't mean to diminish any of this because in some of these cases, it is actually as bad as it comes out, right? Uh, and I don't, I don't want to diminish the people who have been hurt in the past by others and that kind of thing. But when all these people who just are trying to jump onto an issue, uh, but don't know actually what's going on, I don't, I don't really feel like that's constructive in any way possible. I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it's helpful to try to destroy somebody utterly for messing up. That's not a heart of love. That's, I don't, I don't think you see that anywhere in the Bible. When, when I, when I look at the Bible with church discipline, every, you know, the idea for church discipline is to restore that person and maybe not restore them to the same position that they had. But I don't think that any, in any way you would see, uh, anyone in in the bible saying yeah you want that person messed up you want to take away their ability to provide for their family you want to take away their credibility so they can never work in the future you want to remove all their options for life you want to take away all their hope you want to take away all their i mean that's i mean it's an extreme thing i feel like the cancer culture cancer i'm doing it too the cancel culture thing is so extreme and it's so unnuanced uh that it it just ceases to actually produce life change. It might produce a cowering response of I'm sorry. Um, but if you're being bullied into apologizing, I don't, I don't know that I trust that that's an, a genuine apology. I don't know that I trust that that's genuine life change that's happened. I think you may do it because you're trying to save face. You're trying to save your career. You're trying to save your whatever, but I, I just feel like, man, how would I want to be treated? How would I want my kids to be treated? I can look at how whenever I see my kids mess up is the best mode to hold them accountable for their actions, to shame them, to to bully them, to destroy them. No, my my job is to love them, to discipline them, to correct them with restoration in mind, with building them up in mind. And it, it's just that the cancel culture thing is so void of love and so void of compassion and so void of empathy. And when you add the social media element into it, you also find sort of this, and I, I hate like buzzwords like uh, virtue signaling and, you know, narcissism and whatever. I hate all that. Like, I just feel like there's people find these words and they decide to like cling on to them and like use them so out of context all the time that if everything's a narcissist, nothing's a narcissist. If everything is toxic, nothing is toxic, you know, that kind of thing. It just loses its power. Um, but whenever clout is involved uh, and I can, if I tweet something about this issue that goes viral or gets a lot of engagement, I mean, I'm getting a hit of serotonin. I'm getting a hit of dopamine. And so it, it ceases to be about truly making change. And I say this as a social media influencer. So I, I, I kind of get the thing, right? I kind of get uh, jumping onto an opportunity and seeing it and, and seizing it. Um, it. It's real. Like, I, I just, when that's the case, you have a bunch of people who really don't know the situation speaking into it. And no, and and for the most part, there are experts in in the field of whatever this and that is, but for the most part, it's it's people on social media who don't have any clue about the situation in 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 reality. 
you know. So I think the hard part is to be helpful. Yeah, I mean, the hard part is when they're depending on the system the person's in, right? If there's no accountability where they are. So let's let's just take, yeah. for example, and I hate when people name names, but let's take, for example, you know, Mark Driscoll in the Mars Hill situation years yeah. ago. Yeah. No one there was that had any power was holding that individual to any sense of accountability. And it took kind of the community of voices coming together to, to cry out about these things, you know, to a certain extent there, that is the challenge as you talk about wrongness in the book. And it's a powerful book written about those things is if someone doesn't have a sense of wrongness, sometimes it takes a community of people crying out, you know, it's like I go to the passage, you know, uh, David's sexual assault of Bathsheba in, in the Bible, you know, it takes the prophet Nathan uh, right. to come out and to speak out against these things, because David wasn't going to do anything about it. He was completely content. I mean, the dude was cool with yeah. killing off this, this lady's husband to cover up what he's done. But right. there, there's another part of the book that kind of, again, this transitions into what is the motivation behind uh, admitting our wrongness, and then what comes afterwards. Um, yeah, You wrote, haste, as they uh, say, makes waste. When we try to shortcut the process, we're the ones who miss out. The journey builds our character. It strengthens us. It refines and shapes our perspective on on how we live, the world, ourselves, and, and everyone around us. The Bible has a word for this. It's repent. Mm. Um, but mm. it literally translates, change your way of thinking and living. Mm. And I think most of us, are okay with admitting we're wrong, depending on what it is and who is directly affected by it. But most of us are not necessarily inclined to want to change our way of thinking and living. Um, mm. You know, so we end up returning to this destructive pattern of behavior to that affects our lives and our relationships. You know, what say you? How, you know, what is how does that part of the process of admitting wrongness that that this word repent that we've we know so prevalent within Christianity? Yeah. You know, I think. Uh... For the longest time, I really thought that <laughs> sanctification, you know, I, I embraced the fact that it was the agonizingly slow process of becoming more and more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I still believe that. But I think when you look at like a character like Jonah in the Bible, for example, or even David, you know, he, David seemed like a guy who just had multiple personalities because you know one day he's like i will try even in, within the same psalm he would write you know i'm being killed i hate this life sucks you know kill me god oh but i'll trust in you you're amazing and i love you and i'm so thankful that you've shown your faithfulness in the past but this is terrible and i don't know what i'm gonna do and you know so i i think where i fall is the humanity uh psalm 100 uh, I think it's Psalm 100. It might be 103. Uh, he says, God knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Like a father is patient with his kids. So the Lord is patient with us. So like, I, you know, depend, like as, as a dad, I watch my kids and depending on what they ate or didn't eat, how much they slept or didn't sleep, how they did in school or what someone said to them at school, how much TV they watched this week. Did they eat too much sugar? Like their behavior, and this is obviously their, their, their kids. And so they're being shaped into the people that they're going to be. But I would argue that we're all, there's just such an ebb and flow uh, and, and such like every human being in existence is flawed and inconsistent in so many ways. And so what I think set David apart 
and allowed him to be called the man after God's heart was that even though it took Nathan to come to him and confront him, uh, he still repented and he still believed and he still, uh, at, to the greatest of his ability, learned from his mistakes and moved forward uh, with the wisdom that he earned from that mistake. Uh, now, granted, he's the king. So there are things that, you know, maybe consequences he didn't have to deal with that we would, you know, in our day. Um, but more and more, I mean, you look at that, that is sort of the the way that social media has done. It's sort of leveled the playing field. So it doesn't really matter who you are, what your position is, how high ranking you are. There is sort of this like overarching accountability thing that happens um, that no one's really able to get out of, you know, having to deal with the consequences of their choices uh, to some extent. Obviously, there's exceptions to that. But um, I would say the idea is that, you know, I, I learned the hard way about almost everything in my life. And I say that because I, I keep doing the same stupid stuff over and over and over again. And I think I've learned the lesson and then I come back to it and realize I didn't. Even just today, uh, I texted my wife, at least if I can. <laughs> I texted my wife this, this, this morning because we've been, you know, uh, just th there's been some stress. I don't know if you can tell I'm living in an RV right now and just out this window you guys can't see this because this isn't a video uh podcast but you can see the shell of our home that we've been trying to renovate and what was supposed to be three months is going to be over a year when all is said and done uh and so like my wife and i were kind of freaking out this morning a little bit and uh then god just kind of gave us this amazing like reminder that he was with us and so i texted this to my wife thinking about how easy it is to forget that we can utterly and completely trust Jesus all the time. He sees the beginning and the end and every moment in between. All we see is this momentary freak out and then start to question his faithfulness. And he's just calm, cool, and collected, waiting to wow us. It's amazing how patient he is with us. I want to stop forgetting how good he truly is and start living in the peace of that knowledge and hope. And like, that's not like, what most people would call a major failure. You know, most people would say, oh yeah, I forget to trust in the Lord all the time too, you know? But to God, like, he knows he's completely trustworthy. And so just that daily reminding of my, to reminding myself that he's good and reminding myself that like, even if it is worst case scenario and I've messed up beyond my ability to fix it like god has proven over and over and over again that he may not fix it right but he will fix me in the process as i submit to him and pursue him and repent to him and trust him and so you know that may look like you're doing that every other day you know, I'm not saying like genuine repentance. I think a lot of people would define as you say, I'm sorry, and then you never do it again. But I think all of life is repentance. So obviously you're trying to grow to where you don't do the same stupid stuff over and over again. But in reality, a lot of people will live their whole life struggling with the same stupid things over and over again. And it's a matter of, are you repenting? Are you growing? 
Are you seeking God? Are you submitting to the Spirit? Are you being transparent? Are you being honest? Are you not being content with the fact that you messed that up? Are you being real and authentic? Are you living in community with people who can challenge you and help you to see the error of your ways and grow? I, I really do think that if you don't try to hide your sin and you try to stay humble, it, it's almost impossible not to grow because people, if, if people will come alongside you, and to be fair, a lot of people will not, and they will abandon you, and they will shame you, and they will, but you sort of realize like this is the group of people who loves me no matter what. These are the people that I can trust. These are the people that I can cling to. These are the people I know are going to continually show me Jesus and challenge me to pursue him. And I just feel like that's a gift. And I feel like that's if, if more of the church could become those kind of people, the church will actually look like what the church is supposed to look like in this culture. What's your hope for your readers? Ah, man, I just think my hope for my readers is that they would not be afraid anymore. And I, I've read statistics and internet statistics are as good as, as what you pay for them, but that anxiety is at an all-time high, you know, suicide is at an all-time high, divorce is at an all-time high. If you don't have hope, if you're, if you're living in fear or you're living in hopelessness, there is no joy in your life that way. Like everything is sort of a facade and it's sort of a sham and like you're just sort of living as a shadow of what you could be. And so my hope is that as we confront ourselves and confront uh, the thing, and I mean, the book really is, it's, it's actually really funny. I, I would say, I'm not trying to like lift myself up on this, but I, I don't think anybody could read this book and be like, oh yeah. Like a lot of people write a book and it's like, look at me. I'm so great. I've done so many cool things. And I'm just like telling all the stupid stuff that I've done. And at the end of the day, the message is like, like, you're going to be amazed. I'm still alive, but like God used a guy like me you know, who is a total idiot most of the time. And he's still doing something great in my life. And so God can do something with me. He can do something with you and in you and through you. And uh, it doesn't matter what phase of your life you're in, you know, and, but you can't, uh, you can't get to that place if you're not willing to grow from your mistakes and learn from your mistakes. And so that's the hope is that you're, I mean, everybody walks around with that. You walk around with the fear of failure. You walk around with the consequences of failure, the shame of failure. How can we see all those things as fuel for God to turn us into the people that he's making us into? That's my hope is that people will begin to see their circumstances and their mess ups and their mistakes as an opportunity to become the people that God created them to be. Our guest is Stephen Miller. The book is The Art of Getting It Wrong. If you want to stay connected with Stephen, check out stephen-miller.com. Uh, Stephen, it's great chatting with you. Um, thank you for creating this incredibly transparent resource. 
to remind us that it's okay that we get it wrong, but it's what we do afterwards that matters the most. Amen. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it so much. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 